And welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Now, Matt is out in Hawaii today. Or maybe am I in Hawaii and he's here? I'm not sure. But I am hosting for him today, and this is the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Kim Power Stilson, and we're going to talk about self-justification today. Now, we have the usual group here in the studio. We have Madison, Merritt, Rob, and Skyler, and a guest that's observing us. And uh, I'm just wondering if any of you guys have ever self-justified. Oh, I think we do it all the time. I'm just going to be quite honest about it. And you can see it um, as you go along, you know, your friends talking about their relationships. They always self-justify, even when it comes to homework, you know. Okay, so number one, self-justification. Number one thing that you've done recently that you've self-justified. I just think being lazy in general (laughs) or like, I don't know, I, I feel like when I, like I'm really busy with homework and stuff, but every time I eat, I'm like, this is TV time. I have to watch TV. I'm like, it's okay. I can do it because I'm eating, you know, when I could easily be getting homework done. But instead, I just watch TV and I'm lazy and procrastinate. How about when you're late? Anybody do the self-justification when well, they're late? I find it interesting that every 30-mile-an-hour zone has a 25 sign. Why do you get it wrong every time? Every 70-mile-an-hour freeway has a 60-mile-an-hour sign. I know. They just keep on getting those signs wrong. You and cars. <laughs> but the speed's right. I mean, just you go down the street at 30 and a 25, it just feels right. So you're, you're saying the Department of Transportation is to blame, right? Yeah, and those you're clowns justifying. at City Hall. Get it right. <laughs> well, I always hear the late one, right? I have a friend who works in a doctor's office, and she says that if she could list the self-justification she gets every day for people being late to their doctor's appointments. Oh, that is funny, but it's so true. Like, I notice even myself, like, dentist appointment or something. Oh, sorry, I I woke up late, you know, alarm clocks, stuff like that. Or even if it's later, it's like always picking up my kids, you know. Or behind the bus. I, I got behind the bus. That, that's her number one excuse, she says. <laughs> now, my husband's a, a policeman, so Ooh. let's talk about self-justification there. <laughs> How many of you have, you know, done some self-justification to get out of a ticket? Rob? <laughs> I, I, I've had one ticket, and I owned it. Middle of Wyoming, he says, 77 is not 65. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's great. Well, and that's, owned it. that's, that's part funny. of the show, too, owning it, right? If you make a mistake, why not just uh, own up accept it. it, own up to it like Rob. Rob can be our example and, and make the corrections we need to make. So we've got a guest on. We're going to talk about that, too. All right. Sounds good. Now, Merritt was really quiet. Is that normal for the show? It usually is kind of normal, but I'm just thinking of all the times that I've self-justificated. Is that a word? Self-justified. It is now. There you go. Well, her, dri- today. her driving history is a little embarrassing, so she's a little shy about yeah, it. Yeah, since I've uh, you, never you need been to follow over. Rob's example. Obviously, Rob is the person. We now, to be all fair, follow. I've only been pulled over once for a ticket. I've been pulled over many times for vehicle failures. Like taillights is my favorite. Uh, sir, did you know your taillights are out? I do now. <laughs> You you sound like the perfect person to give a ticket to. I'll oh. take it. Give me more. <laughs> and last week I ran a stop sign. So I haven't uh, haven't been pulled over for that. Well, good for you. Good for you. I can safely say that I've never been pulled over for a ticket, but that is knocking on wood. If we have wood somewhere and in you the don't, studio, so you're in trouble. <laughs> I know. Whoops. <laughs> and it's Irish Week coming up too, and so that's fun. So yeah, you know need to justify, like, I guess, if you're not wearing green, you know, and someone's like, why aren't you wearing green? Skyler's already wearing yeah. green. He's that excited. <laughs> Just getting ready. Just getting pumped up. And notice it's the redhead. That's yeah, and I'm really green. not even Irish. 
Everyone really? thinks I am because I'm a redhead. I'm a ginger, and I wear green shirts a lot. So <laughs> well, well, it's just it's a really good coloring you've you've picked there. Yeah, yeah. There I just you go. I just work on my colors a lot every morning. <laughs> more is the pity. More is the pity. We should all be Irish. All right. So self justification. I just am going to justify that the best people in the world are Irish, but I don't know if that works either. Oh, Ooh. it's like a gauntlet. I'm I just fighting words. <laughs> all right. Just in March. Just in March. Um, all right. So do we have something? What's next? Human headlines? Or? Yes. There we go. They're going to ruin a perfectly good segue, but this is such big news this week that we have to step away from self justification for a moment to talk about the Pope. Everybody's been watching that chimney all week long. And so now we know it's, uh, what, Pope Francis I? Something like that. There's a great article in Wikipedia here. Pope names by popularity. What do you think is the most popular name for a pope? Because they've been picking these names since the year 533. Like Carl. Pope Carl. <laughs> it would be nice, though. That'd be interesting. The five Gospels, St. Carl. That's missing in my Bible. John. Pope okay. John. They've had 21 of those. All right. That makes sense. Number two caught me off guard. Gregory. <gasps> nice. 16 nice. Pope Gregories, 15 Pope Benedicts. Well, I guess uh, 16 because the last one was Pope Benedict Sixteenth. But there's some others uh, rounding out the top ten. Pius. Pope Stephen, Pope Urban. That's the 10th most popular one, Pope Urban. Huh. I like that name. He came from the urban part of town, you know. And that was Keith before, Urban. yeah, exactly. That was before <laughs> Keith Urban got uh, popular, you know? Wow. Wait, so I don't know if I'm dumb, but how do they pick these names? No, they're not. Mom, their moms pick them, right? It's their actual name? Yes, Because no, yeah. they, 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 I thought... They, it's tradition. They, they want to pick a name to... For instance, Pope John, I, it's to be respectful to... John and it, it just I've got to be honest and plead my ignorance I don't know my I, I, I'd, I'd hate to say something and then have uh, somebody who's very familiar with Catholic tradition correct me but I don't know it's just tradition it's a very uh, well, nice thing they do from my understanding these are just the most common names of popes yeah, so, so when there's it's a like... new pope they'll, they'll pick a name that they use as their service as the pope mm-hmm. oh that's not their real name it's not their real name I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So it, they could be Carl and then be Pope Benedict. So the car- cardinal who got picked today is now called Pope, uh, unless you're listening to the repeat, the guy who got picked on Wednesday, is now called <laughs> Pope Francis I. But as of earlier this week, he was not Francis I. And who is he? He was cardinal. What was his name? Do we know? Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I was going to say that that, that is very important information, Kim, that we should, (laughs) as a legitimate radio show, have at our fingertips and our ignorance is showing. But in the meantime, just a couple other interesting names. I thought that there's a lot of one-off popes that were picked once or twice. Uh, John Paul, for instance, to have the name John and Paul was picked twice. That was the pope before Benedict. That's pretty. Was was that like – I mean – very pretty. Yeah, uh, it's a like tribute to John Paul. and yeah. Paul. It's a very nice ring uh, to it. Kind of made me think of the Beatles and the uh, beautiful music. Or the French. Not, not, not to make light of it, but to think back to uh, you know 1960s cartoons, there was a Pope Felix. Oh, yeah. You know, that's like one of the most popular names for boys in Germany. Felix. Isn't that's that true. That's yeah. true. A Pope Linus. Oh, like Linus oh. and Lucy. But my favorite of all, and I don't think it was pronounced this way, there was a Pope Lando. L-A-N-D-O. <laughs> I think well, it was Star Wars pronounced a different way. Them, but. So. Do you know what year that was? 
I should look that and up. And there's been hundreds, It's been a long right? time. It so. Was, okay, so I've got, I've got news on this subject. Um, the, the new pope's real name is Jorge, and I, I guess, I'm guessing it's pronounced Jorge, Mario Bergoglio. And he's 76 years old, and he chose to be Francis. So I also looked up how they choose their names. And um, they say that in the Bible, when you get a new job from God, you pick a new name or you're given a new name. And so that's the idea. The The first question they ask you is, do you accept? And then they say, oh, yeah, I accept. And then what name will you take? So then they pick their own name. That's lovely. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. So he According himself. to this article. Yeah. So, Fran- um, so what was the name again? Uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Yes. Pick that makes name. sense because he's from Argentina, correct? Uh, and he, yes, isn't he Argentina. the first one from Argentina, I believe? Or it makes sense at I, least since that's... He is the, he's the first non-European leader of the church in more than 1,000 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Way to go, guy. And it's a big deal. I grew up with a girlfriend who, and my family's all Roman Catholic, and, um, uh, you know, we it was a big deal last time they picked a pope. So very, very holy event for... Um, that church and people in that church so yeah it's a big big day for them yeah there you go pope francis it's a pretty cool name too all right so we have what do we have next are we going to talk about we're going to talk about disappointments and i think this time of year it's is that right um yeah so um kind of with disappointments you know there's something that Merritt's going to talk about with uh, a pretty big disappointment (laughs) it is a big disappointment um in january 250 motorcyclists stopped on the interstate in California in order to for a guy to propose to his girlfriend. I remember that. But, that was great. <laughs> he wanted to propose and promote his band at the same time. So he got a, hundreds of motorcyclists to stop the 10 freeway in West Covina. And then his friends filming from an overpass filmed him proposing to his girlfriend. And they threw something in the motorcycle that made pink exhaust come out. And it was <laughs> – but the problem was there's one rule of uh, driving in Southern California. Thou shalt not block traffic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that. You could have figured out. And so yeah. Highway the Patrol was uh, uh, prosecuting him to the furthest extent of the law, I bet. Yeah, so they – four men have been arrested and they are um, sentenced to probation and 35 days of community service. But Merritt, so – that you skipped the the most important thing. Pink smoke stopped the ten freeway. Did she say yes? You know what? She did. Okay. <laughs> so it's worth it, right? <laughs> Jail time, community service. It's worth it because she if said she, yes. Yeah. Though I don't know if I'd want to stick around to a guy if he was in jail, but that's my preference. <laughs> okay. But I mean, you know, that guy, that's going pretty elaborate. I've noticed that, you know, proposals and all these different things are becoming more and more elaborate. Like, um, I'm from California and, you know, there it was just, you know, you ask the girl, oh, do you want to go to the date dance with me? But halfway through high school, I moved to Utah and you go full out. Like, I remember coming and it was like a girl's choice dance. And they're like, so who are you going to ask? And I'm like, oh, I think about this guy. How are you going to ask him? I'm just kidding. I'm going to go up and just be like, hey, hey, bud, do you want to go? You know? And they're like, no, you have to go all out. So I ended up getting like all these pink streamers and did this thing like I'd be tickled pink if you went to this dance with me. But it was just it's pretty elaborate. I mean, so, you know, stopping the freeway, that's pretty impressive. OK, so um, 
with that, getting arrested and dating and <laughs> elaborate asking, my daughter had to ask someone to a preference dance. And she sent my husband, who I mentioned earlier is a policeman, so ties in here. And he went into the school and uh, had the guy, the kid, uh, arrested. And oh, then- no. That is awesome. <laughs> and she gave him a citation that said, you need to appear at the court of M- McCall, my daughter, at preference. That is the coolest thing oh, I've ever heard. Crazy. He was white. My husband said he walked in. <laughs> Is so and so here? The kid just turned pale. Oh like, my gosh! He just gotten his driver's license the week before, so he was kind of worried. Oh, that is great! Oh, that is too too awesome. Well, that's that's your biggest fear is that when you're first learning to drive, is oh, did I I hit somebody and I wasn't paying attention, and now the judge is going to come and eat me. <laughs> Oh, poor kid. Well, you know, I'm sure through his mind he was, you know, thinking of what am I going to do and probably self-justifying any possible things he could have done. Um, But something that's really big, I guess, kind of news with women now is The Bachelor and the season finale with that. Um, Loved it. Watched it. Had a party. Yeah. So actually, this is our you know last little article that we're going to be talking about. But I have never watched it until this season. My friend is just really into it, and I was just watching it going, hmm, okay, you know, all right, you know, kind of buying into the idea, I guess. But um, talk about self-justification when these girls get cut out. You know, um, the one, the third to last, her name was Ashley, and she was a lovely girl, very nice, beautiful girl. And um, By the way, do you know why Skylar and I don't watch The Bachelor? Why? Why do we need to watch a TV show when we live it? Exactly. (laughs) It's too painful for you guys to watch. I know the truth. Okay, so what you're saying, you're going to talk about her justification. And it made world news in the Mm -hmm. seconds that she did it. She came onto the stage. Yeah. And they were asking her why she was third, why she didn't get picked over the other two girls who were fun. Yeah. So she was just saying that she was more serious, you know, than the other girls and that the other girls were really, you know, more fun than she was. And she said, but I am fun. I just wasn't acting that way towards her and it's true this the last two girls were very lighthearted. That's obviously what he wanted um in his spouse and he found one. So congratulations to uh Sean yeah. and Catherine. Yep, there you go. But uh, it's just kind of Do these relationships really last? Not many of them. The yeah. the show has been on for seventeen seasons. Wow. And out of those there haven't there have only been like two or three that have gotten married. But the show, the justification for that show, because they received a lot of negative uh, return, especially their first few seasons, is that it makes great money. Thirty eight point two million dollars the network makes per episode. Wow. This last one was a three-hour finale special, over $100 million in sponsorships to the network. So, um, you know, having a reality show with love and relationships for The Bachelor, self-justification of why you're not picked or why you're not good enough, makes millions of dollars for the network. Yeah, there you go. And then the next Bachelorette is uh, Desiree. I was discarded at, like, you know, in the fourth uh, round yeah, or fourth, something. fourth, I think. And so, yeah, she has a chance of finding love. But, I mean, you know... Self-justification, I was blown away by that dollar amount. I had no idea. And, I mean, just think of that huge market of women tuning in. It was kind of funny. Their live studio audience was all women, you know, because they're the ones that are really interested in this. There's a couple guys in there look like Skylar. Yeah. He's there oh, to yeah. date the girls that were left over, right? <laughs> yeah. That could be a big business too, right? The girls that get, you know, self-justified. Hey, I, maybe I'm not that fun, but I'm still cute, so maybe you should date me. So, you know, yeah, I mean, a, there, you go. there could be a whole self-justification business to that. Yep. Yeah, I love The Bachelor. It's great. Yeah. Okay. I've never watched it. All right. Well, we're, you're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We're going to go to a quick break and be back with more. 
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt is out in Hawaii for the week, enjoying the sunshine and the sand, and we're here in the studio filling in for him. I'm Kim Power Stilson, and you're listening to the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. All right, coming up, we're talking about self-justification, but for now, we're going to go to disappointments. Human disappointments. You know, that dissatisfaction you get when things don't turn out the way you want it to. We don't handle that well. I mean, you think about your buddies over there sitting on the sofa watching the big game, cheering and heckling all afternoon, and then the game ends and his team loses. And what does he mutter? Oh, those refs are so blind. The other team cheated. Cheated! Thorough analysis, Einstein. No acknowledgement of how poorly his team played. No recognition of the opposing team's strength. Well, a few weeks goes by and his girlfriend breaks up with him. And he's over there on the sofa again moping. And he croaks. <laughs> She's an idiot. <laughs> you know how women are, how emotional they get. The only response to that he wants is a nod. For some reason, as disappointment cripples his emotions, it just doesn't seem like time for honest feedback. Well, that's what he gets for forgetting her birthday. Again. Maybe next time you won't spend so much time watching the game. Meanwhile, at the birthday party, Miss what's her name? Trips, plants her freshly sliced piece of cake right into the carpet. Her reaction? Who put a staircase there? Now relax, it's not like the stairs moved. You grew up in that house, you've lived there for 20 years. But does she admit carelessness on her part? No, it's the house's fault. You see, as humans, we're not very good at pointing appropriate blame, especially at ourselves. And not just disappointment, we ruin good things, too. Like that one guy who won the $10,000 lottery scratch-off. Oh, I should have picked a better multiplier number. I could have won a million bucks. Welcome back to Matt Townsend Show. Okay, Rob, great human disappointments. Um, We're talking about self-justification today. And, okay... You know, I heard you talk about um, moving the staircase. I thought that was hilarious. You're saying, um, you know, we drop something, we fall down the stairs, and it's the house's fault. Absolutely. (laughs) And I have a lot of vehicle-related experiences where it was the car's fault that I slid sideways. Why do we do that? Why do you think um, we make it someone else's fault other than, hey, look, I I slipped, I fell, I I wasn't paying attention to where I was going? You know, I think that we just don't want to admit that we're wrong or admit that we're at fault. You know, we want to be right. And so we always self-justify. It was the car's fault. Yeah, there you go. So we make mistakes, right? You, it, this, the segment's human. We make mistakes. We're human. So if we know that and we're all used to that, why do we need to justify all the time? And do people really do that as more often than we think? Oh, as I've just been prepping for this show, I've noticed pretty much um, almost, you know, every half hour, I at least encounter myself or someone else self-justifying. I mean, it happens all the time, you know, in relationships, you know, as we were mentioning earlier with The Bachelor. Happens all the time because, you know, they'll just break up and then within, you know, for the four days, they'll be like, oh, you know, actually, I hated that person. No, you didn't. You know, you were very happy with them. You're just justifying that. You know, and like with sports games, I cannot tell you how many times growing up, you know, that my dad would be like yelling in the other room, you blind ref, you know, like all those things. It was 1998. The Utah Jazz actually did something cool where they were in the finals with the Chicago Bulls to the point where I even paid attention and learned things like 
what the NBA Finals was. <laughs> and it was not Michael Jordan's greatness. It was the refs. The refs totally threw it. And yeah. that's why the Jazz lost. It had nothing to do with the fact that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player of the 1990s. <laughs> and Skyler just buried his head in shame of what <laughs> Rob said. That's just because you're from Utah and you're hurt. You're, you're self-justifying the Jazz's loss. The Jazz were awesome! <laughs> the Bulls were better. See, there you go. It happens See, that's the all honest the feedback I don't want to hear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what do you think the most common, do you think sports riles people up the most? Because people get negative with sports. I, I see it all the I mean... Yeah, well, I see it all the time in sports, but I mean, I'm always watching sports on TV. Like all the TV I watch, I watch like ESPN First Take, Sports Center, Sports Nation, and and there's they bring athletes on who've lost, and all they do is make excuses. Not all the time. Some some own up. A lot of the time, there are coaches and athletes that are like, you know, they outplayed us. We didn't play defense. You know, that's that's how it is. But a lot of times, there's a lot of athletes um, and coaches who do make excuses. And then playing sports in high school. Um, coming into the locker room, like if we're getting beat, like at, at halftime, you know, I've seen fights break out in the locker room because they're like, "Why aren't you guarding your man?" You know, or like, "Why are you shooting those stupid shots?" And and they're like, "Well, I can't, I can't do it because this guy's all over me and he's following me. And the refs aren't doing anything." And they start fighting, and and no one can just be like, "Yeah, my bad." You know, I'll try and do better. And I and I think I think it definitely shows like the true character of a person when they can admit that they were wrong and be like, "Yeah, you know, I have room for improvement. Thanks, thanks for helping me with that." And they can. Get over it. But I, I think sports is, is huge with it. So. Do you think the world would be different if people could just not go negative and say, hey, great game. They had a better offense than we did. So, hey, we, we lost. You know, Try again. Let's go back and, and beef up our offense. I think that it would definitely be huge change in the world because, you know, like how he was saying, all the time people justify themselves all the time. I'm just thinking, you know, I play sports too and just, you know, how it's like, wow, that's – it's a part of the sport – psychology you know is almost to have be like oh well this is why i didn't i think that it would make it would show character and it would strengthen character and integrity which would be nice so maybe listening to our next guest um our guest coming up we'll we'll be able to talk a little bit about why we self-justify and how we can catch ourselves in the act and how maybe we can make the world a little bit better um by listening to her advice we'll be back with more of the matt townsend show and our self-justification guest dr carol travis after this Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host today, filling in for Matt while he's in Hawaii, Kim Power Stilson. I host the talk-worthy radio show normally, but I'm here today for Matt. And we're talking about self-justification. We have Dr. Carol Tavaris with us. Before the break, I I um, uh, mispronounced her name because someone in here gave me the wrong sheet. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to self-justify. Carol Ann Tavaris is an American social psychologist, and she's an author. And we're going to talk about some of her books and uh, hear from her today. She received a Ph.D. in social psychology from the University of Michigan, and she's taught psychology at the University of California. She has a, an impressive array of credentials that include uh, everything from articles, book reviews, reviews, op-eds that have appeared in publications such as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Times Literary Supplement, and other publications. Um, great thing is uh, Tavris grew up in California, and I'm from there as well. She is the granddaughter of Russian Jewish immigrants who came from Chicago to California um, when she was a child. Dr. Carol Traver- Tavaris, welcome. 
<laughs> nice to be with you, Kim. You're laughing. <laughs> many, Why? Many because many people fall straight over on my name. You don't ever get an R after a V. That's why it's a perfectly natural mistake, and I appreciate your acknowledging it. Very charming. I, I was See owning up. Yeah, <laughs> owning up. Absolutely. Now, we've been talking, um, we're so delighted to have you on the show today. We've been talking about self-justification, and I've read through your some of your articles and your books, and you have so much to offer, but I thought, would you mind starting with a very simple um, explanation of what self-justification is, please? Well, you bet. So, first of all, the book I wrote with Elliot Aronson, who is one of the greatest social psychologists uh, in the country, in our century, uh, and Eliot was um, really the developer of the theory of cognitive dissonance, which he turned into a theory of self-justification. It's quite simple. It's a clunky word, cognitive dissonance, although uh, John Stewart loves it. He's always talking about it. He describes it as what it feels like to have two rats in a bag fighting with each other. That's what it is. It's two beliefs or a belief in a behavior that conflict with each other, that are fighting with each other. That's what it means to be in a state of dissonance. So I'm a smoker, and I know smoking is bad for me. Uh, one of them has to yield. You've got to quit smoking, or you have to justify smoking. So what Elliot did that I think is really brilliant is he said, the kinds of dissonance that make us most uncomfortable, that we really can't live with, that the brain is designed to reduce the discomfort is when information conflicts with something really central to our self-concept. So if I think of myself as a smart, kind, ethical, wise person, and you now present me with evidence that I'm holding some stupid belief that's long been discredited, or I've just done something to harm a friend, or I've just made a really goofy mistake, my choice is to say, hmm, maybe I'm not so kind, competent, and ethical after all. Uh, Thank you very much for this information. I'm so grateful to you. Or I can maintain my self-concept and tell you where you can go with your study and your information. So most people reduce the discomfort of the realization that they, who think of themselves in a pretty good way, have done something that counters their view of themselves. It's a very funny thing about Americans, you know. The vast majority of Americans think they're better than average. Eighty percent of all Americans think they're better drivers than average. (laughs) And at two Christian colleges, most of the students thought they were humbler than average. So it's a bias in how we see ourselves, and that's a good thing. So what it does often is blind us to information that we should be open to. So when you say Americans, I mean, is there research for that? Is it just Americans? It's a cultural thing? Well, that's a good question. Actually, I I said that specifically because that's where most of the research has been done. But cognitive dissonance is universal. The content, the thing that may make you feel uncomfortable, may vary from country to country. But the experience of feeling dissonance when we have done something that is discrepant with our views of ourselves, that is universal. And um, it's, you know, it's the mechanism that allows us to sleep at night, to feel comfortable over decisions that we've made, to, uh, you know, let us proceed along a path that we've chosen. But by the same token, it's the same mechanism that makes, that blinds us 
to evidence that we should be paying attention to, that maybe we aren't such good drivers, maybe we really did do something that was harmful, maybe this belief that I've held for so many years is wrong. Um, so it's a double-edged sword. It's how we all think, it's how we all process information, but we need to learn what it is so that we can look for it and correct for it. Now, I love, uh, in doing some research on you for, for listeners, I, the book you wrote with Elliot Aronson is called Mistakes Were Made. Is that right? But not by me. But not by me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh-huh. I missed that part because that's an that's an important part of the title. But not my. But not by mm-hmm. me. And I love that you shared a story um, during an interview you had a couple of years ago, where you and it's it's kind of sad because you know a listener should know something about Elliot Aronson. You had agreed to write this book together, and then he found out that he had some macular degeneration and was going blind. Can you tell us that story? I found it fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Um, We have long been friends and colleagues, and uh, we were sitting down and talking one day about um, issues in our respective lives and careers that were of interest to us, you know, questions for me like, why is it that a district attorney, when given clear information that DNA has exonerated somebody that he's put in prison uh, 20 years ago, wouldn't you be grateful that you could say... Um, my God, I made such a terrible mistake. I put an innocent person in prison. Thank God for DNA evidence. We can now correct this miscarriage of justice. And Elliot said, well, you know, there's so many of these questions. How do these people sleep at night? How do dictators sleep at night? How do um, people who make such terrible mistakes sleep at night? And he said, I know the answer. It's, It's from this by understanding cognitive dissonance. So we designed our book and what we wanted it to cover, sold the book, and began working on it, and then his macular degeneration began to worsen. And um, he's not totally blind with macular. You can have some peripheral vision, but he did bottom out in the course of our doing this. And at one point he thought, no, I want to bail out. I can't do this. And I said, no, no, we're in this together. I can't do this without you, and we're going to do it together. And one of the really brilliant things we both learned about doing this. You know, we would talk about a chapter, we would talk about what kind of research we wanted in it, what we wanted it to cover. I would draft a chapter, and then I would read it to him. Read it to him. I advise anybody who wants to be a writer to do this, because when you read something out loud, you can't smuggle a bad paragraph past the listener. And he's a brilliant listener, and so he would edit by listening. I'd read, he'd respond, and we would revise together, and I think it made our book stronger and better written than if we had proceeded in the old-fashioned way just by reading. Well, and I love what you said about it. You said that um, working with him was uh, like trying to sneak a fastball past Hank Aaron, famous baseball player, and, uh, and that was like trying to sneak a sunrise past a rooster. Oh, you've gotten some of my favorite lines. <laughs> yes, indeed. You couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't pitch a bad sentence past him. It was like trying to pitch a fastball past Hank Aaron. Exactly right. He's, um, he's not only a brilliant social psychologist and experimental scientist, he also was a pioneer in the development of encounter groups in the, uh, many years ago in the 80s, which at that time, and for him, was a way of teaching people how to listen, how to identify their feelings, how to admit their true feelings, their mistakes, if you will, too. Um, and so he taught me a great deal about how to listen. 
Now, you keep saying past tense. Is he no longer with us? Oh, no, he is definitely with us. I'm okay. just talking about the process of writing this book. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to self-justify him right out of the picture. So. No, 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 certainly not. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Dr. Tavers, we're um, talking about self-justification and uh, the what makes us self-justify, which is cognitive dissonance. And... You know, uh, there's a metaphor that you used in one of your interviews as well, and it has to do with the pyramid. And I thought that might be helpful for listeners um, to kind of grab a hold of what this means and maybe how we use it. Absolutely. The pyramid is, I think, a very useful metaphor. I I will say about cognitive dissonance, it's one of the few theories in, in psychology that when you get it, when you really get how this thing works, you see it everywhere around you, you see it in yourself, you're better prepared for it, and you're better able to cope with its effects. Here's how it works. Let's imagine we've got two students at the top of a pyramid. They're at the very top with the same kind of attitudes about cheating. It's not, it's not the worst crime in the world, but it's not a good thing. You shouldn't cheat, but it's not miserable. That, that's their views of cheating. Now they're taking an exam, a crucial exam. Their grade rests on this exam. They absolutely have got to get an A on this exam or they're going to blow the, the class. And they suddenly get, they, 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 they go blank on a crucial question, and suddenly they're given the opportunity to cheat. A student next to them makes her answers clear. Impulsively, one cheats and the other does not cheat. One gives up the grade for integrity, and the other gives up integrity for the grade. Now, here's how dissonance works. The minute we take a step, we take an action, cheat or don't cheat, we will be motivated to reduce the dissonance between our belief in cheating and our behavior. We will need to justify the action we just took. So the cheater will now say, "Eh, you know what, cheating isn't such a big deal. Everybody cheats. It's a victimless crime. Who cares? It's no big deal. And besides, I really need this grade. The one who didn't cheat will justify that action as well. It's more important to me to think of myself and know myself to be an honest person. Um, There'll be other opportunities for me to do well in this class. Cheating is not a victimless crime. Everybody suffers. Now, over time, what will happen to them is each of them will justify their action, cheating or not cheating, until after a few weeks, if you imagine them now at the bottom of the pyramid, they are very far apart from each other in their attitudes about cheating. And they will think they always held those views about cheating. So now, as we say in the book, if here you are at the top of the pyramid, facing any big decision in your life, blow the whistle on wrongdoing at work, leave a bad relationship or stay in it, um, have an affair or don't have an affair, Uh, you know, tweet pictures of yourself if you're a politician or not. Whatever the decision might be, a moral one, a business one, a a romantic one, the minute we take a step off that pyramid, we're going to justify the action that we took. It may be a very small step, but we'll justify it. And then this is the crucial thing because of the way dissonance works. We will now stop paying attention to any information that might indicate we were wrong in the decision that we made, that we went the wrong way off that pyramid, that there was really a better way for us to go. 
And the further we slide down that pyramid, the harder it becomes to go back up to look for evidence that we went in the wrong direction, because it would mean having to say that our very first step was the wrong one. This is how people get entrapped in a belief or a course of action long past the time when they, we would all be better if we changed direction or changed our minds. Now, Dr. Tavers, we um, are going to talk more about this after the break, and maybe you could give us some examples of um, people that historically we might recognize that have slipped down either side of that pyramid and justified that information that conflicted, may have conflicted with themselves in the beginning. We'll be right back with more of the Matt Townsend Show after this. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kim Power Stilson in filling for in for Matt while he's out in Hawaii. I just kind of thought about Matt out there and the palm trees and the sunshine. And, and here we are in the studio talking about self-justification. He should have taken us. <laughs> there we go. Another self-justification for Dr. Carol Travers. We have been on the line with her from the studio talking about her book and her co-author, um, Mr. Aronson. And Carol, before we went to the break, we were talking about um, the pyramid, this pyramid where the information um, cl- conflicting with self, we make a decision, maybe takes us down um, the pyramid in a different way than we perhaps originally hoped our life would would take us or our values would take us. Can you give us some examples of um, maybe historically of people who have started off um, at the top of this pyramid and have slid down either way? Well, there are many in just about any domain that you could think of. One of the things we found most interesting in our book, we end every chapter with a story of somebody who was able to break out of the cocoon of self-justification, suddenly realizing the depth of a mistake that they had made or a harm that they had caused. And it, for me, it was actually in those stories that I really began to see how very difficult it is to do this. You need to understand that, that, that cognitive dissonance is kind of like our mental thermostat. It just buzzes along under consciousness. It's not something we're aware of doing all the time, which is why it's different from people who know that they're consciously lying to another person in order to avoid uh, going to prison or losing a marriage or uh, having to pay a fine. People know when they're lying. With dissonance, it's a way of protecting ourselves from even realizing that we're wrong. So you see this in many ways. So, for example, um, the people who believed uh, Andrew Wakefield, this doctor from many years ago who believed that uh, vaccines cause children's autism, uh, he turned out to be a fraud. He was in the league with uh, lawyers who paid him a lot of money to make this argument. And long, long, long after, it became abundantly clear that vaccines do not cause children's autism. The people who originally committed themselves to that view continue to hold it. And you'd think they would say, what a relief to know that vaccinating my child wasn't what caused this uh, autism, and now we can put all of our time and money and effort into finding out what is a cause. But instead, no, they remain committed to the original view. It's too hard to say I was wrong. Or consider the health establishment in the United States that for decades has been promoting the view that eating fat 
is what makes us fat, and that eating fat is related to coronary artery disease and heart disease. Well, many meta-analyses, big studies, study after study after study, has shown that that logical assumption is wrong. So have they said, boy, is that fabulous information. We really need to know this. No, because they have invested money and time and effort and intellectual belief in the notion that eating fat is what makes us fat. Um, in the so, law, again, let, you, I'm sorry. I, I apologize for interrupting you. you. No, no, I just want ahead. to clarify because mm-hmm. this is some powerful information you're sharing. Mm-hmm. People perhaps at some point uh, come up with um, you know, a supposition and they work to prove this, find out it's false. And because they've just gone public or, you know, my, I, I guess there's a couple questions there. Is it because they've gone public that they don't want to, quote, unquote, lose face? Um, yes. Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. or is it because they just don't like to be wrong? I mean, what is it that would stop people from saying, hey, we were wrong? Because remember, remember, what we're protecting here is my view of myself as a smart, well-informed, ethical person, right? I come up with this belief that X is Y, whatever the belief is. I base it on, in some cases, on um, research evidence, sometimes on an argument that I hear in the news, whatever it might be. I, I step off the pyramid in the belief that, in holding on to this belief. Now, if you tell me I'm wrong, it's not just my belief you're questioning, it's my view of myself as an intelligent person who makes wise decisions. Science is one of the few methods we have that forces us to test our beliefs and consider the possibility that we're wrong. This is why I call science a form of humility control, because it's one of the few ways really we have of not just looking for information that confirms what we believe, that's the natural way, but of looking for information that disconfirms what we believe. That's what scientists force us to do, although even scientists don't welcome information that disagrees with a cherished hypothesis. Well, I agree. And, you know, a great example of that, I'm just thinking this week is um, Albert Einstein's birthday. He was born in 1879. And he, I, I, I think there was a big, a big, this is a great example, right? Because he's the one of the researchers that worked on the atomic bond, bomb. And then afterwards, he spent his life saying, hey, um, I was wrong. Yeah, um, I, I, I was wrong to do this. So he mm-hmm. did not engage in this self-justification. Exactly right. It's, you know, the really interesting thing about it, I, I will say the, the important way of breaking out of the default view of cognitive dissonance or the, sort of the mechanical way it works is to stop yourself in mid-fall down the pyramid and say, if I hold this belief... The belief may be wrong, and it doesn't make me a stupid person. You know, When I, a good, smart person, make a mistake, I remain a good, smart person, and the mistake remains a mistake. Now, how do I acknowledge the mistake I made, learn from the mistake I made so that I don't keep going down this pyramid you know, into, a, into the mud, <laughs> improve my life, and make amends correct the consequences of the mistake I made. It is not so difficult. In fact, when people are able to say, honey, you know that argument we've been having for the last 22 years? Turns out I've been thinking about this. You're right, and I'm wrong. (laughs) You know, you're not going to get a bad reaction when you do that. 
And so it's quite funny that people will put so much energy and passion and effort into not saying, honey, I was wrong, when in fact it's often a tremendous relief to be able to do that, even if it is momentarily embarrassing for us to realize that we were wrong. So would you say that, you know, speaking of of marriage and relationships, um, would you say that men and women differ in their need to reduce this dissonance? Um, That is a very popular gender question, Kim. (laughs) Everybody Uh wants to know this one. Um, Men and women don't differ in the need to reduce dissonance. Nobody is happy with dissonance. But, again, the content of what makes you feel bad about yourself will vary. You can criticize my cooking ability, and I will agree with you, because I don't see myself as a great cook. I'm not a great cook. That's just how that is. But if you question my skepticism (laughs) or something that I think I'm pretty good at, if you show me, as Elliot and I talk about in our book, times when I should have been skeptical and wasn't, then boy, do I feel dissonance because it's something, it's information that is dissonant with my view of myself, something that I pride myself in. Uh, In our book, Elliot and I talk about how we both originally bought into the McMartin preschool case. We thought maybe those daycare teachers were guilty. It's a source of enormous embarrassment to me to this day that I at first went along with that horrible episode in American history of... um, that hysterical epidemic, and which, by the way, caused enormous harm because of all the people who couldn't say we were wrong about those daycare workers, some of whom, by the way, are still in prison, falsely. So um, it's, um, there's not a sex difference in the need to reduce dissonance, but there may be in what causes us to feel it. In a marriage, neither side wants to be wrong. That's the whole problem in so many marriages where each side is so sure that they're right. Well, and I have a question, too, something you brought up. You said, you know, cooking versus skepticism. And I think this is interesting perhaps for listeners um, out there saying, okay, what are the things that I would really get upset if that information conflicted? And so, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking kind of from a global view, um, what makes the world go round? People are perhaps susceptible to different kinds of dissonance or different um, beliefs about themselves and that dissonance, right? Because some some people, otherwise, we would all be gridlocked all the time, right? There are variances that make us able to be flexible and keep moving through life. See, absolutely. If you really, if, for example, if your view of politics is that politicians on all sides uh, can be corrupted by power and money and influence, then you're not as likely to feel dissonance when a politician from your favorite party um, is found guilty of corruption and influence, okay? But often what happens when people have a strong identification, I was loving your conversation earlier about sports, you strongly identify with your team, your country, your religion, your political party. So the way dissonance works is when someone on your side, our side, does something stupid, illegal, or immoral, we minimize it. When someone on the other side does exactly the same thing, you know, we say, see, (laughs) just like those people to cheat, (laughs) okay? Um, It's the same behavior, but because of the way we are biased to process information, 
we feel most dissonant, most uncomfortable when it's someone on our side, like like ourselves, who does who makes the mistake or who does something unethical. Same behavior on the other side, and that's perfectly consonant. That's what those people do. So it's important, really crucial to understand how this works because we see this how this leads to stalemates, whether it's the Middle East um, discussions, whether it's our own Congress, whether it's how two uh, sports fans see the same game, you know, who committed um, the most mistakes. Uh, it's a natural way we have of processing information, but if we're ever going to reach compromise and solve our problems, we need to learn how to break away from that common way of of identifying with our side. Well, thank you. This is uh, Dr. Carol Travers, Travers. And, you know, we're talking about self-justification and cognitive dissonance. And, you know, I really think this is fabulous because... After the break, we're going to talk about ways perhaps we can stop this cycle, understand other people, maybe have more patience with them. Again, we're talking with Dr. Carol Tavares, and she is the author of Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. She's an American psychologist and author. We'll be back with more on The Matt Townsend Show after this. And welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Kim Power-Stilson. I am filling in for Matt while he's away in Hawaii. We are talking with Carol, Dr. Carol Tavares, and we're talking about self-justification. Now, Carol, before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, your book and the way that um, you have these stories at the end of these chapters. And that was, again, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, co-written with Elliot Aronson. And we were giving you examples of uh, people maybe historically have who have, um, you know, had cognitive, cognitive dissonance affect maybe decisions that, that really were on behalf of all of us. We, we mentioned Einstein. We mentioned um, some other social errors. What about the people listening who are saying, okay, you know, I get it. I... The information conflicts with self. Sometimes I justify. What is, how can we catch ourselves? What are the signs we could watch for? And how can we teach maybe our kids or the people around us uh, how not to fall down that side of the the pyramid? Mm -hmm. Well, um, as Elliot would say, you want to be mindful about decisions. Before we make a decision is when we are the most open-minded by definition. You're going to buy a car and you look for the pros and cons of the two kinds of cars you're thinking of. After we make a decision, we're going to, we're going to shut our mental doors. So one, one important thing to do is always to keep clear in our minds um, the difference between in, in information that we're getting that we might want to pay attention to and how we are reacting to it. So, for example, um, it's very easy to dismiss information that we don't like, that we just don't want to hear, that seems discrepant with you know something that we believe. But we need to learn to be able to evaluate that information as carefully as information that confirms what we believe. The other thing is, and you know, especially with children, um, 
uh, Elliot actually did some research with this because one of the one of the things that dissonance teaches us is that when people can be induced to do something nice for another person, they're going to justify the niceness that they did by deciding that the person was worth their being nice to and worthy of being helped. Uh, and aren't they such a good person for being helpful? It's the other face of what kids do and adults do when they've harmed somebody else, uh, say in a playground fight or by you know ostracizing another kid. They will justify that act of harm or cruelty by saying, well, the other kid started it, the other kid's no good, the other kid isn't worth it. So it's important to understand that justification works in both directions, we'll justify our acts of harm, but we will also justify our acts of kindness, and which is, I think, important to keep in mind. Uh, second, and are they both dangerous? I mean, is it okay to go off on the cognitive dissonance if it's a kind thing versus a not? I mean, and you know what? Anything that we, any decision that we make, any step that we take. Um, if it's a choice, if it's a decision, if there was another way of doing things, especially if there, especially if there's another way of doing things, then we really are going to want to justify the choice that we made. So, for example, in marriage, in every marriage, you start off a marriage, you start off a relationship, this is the most wonderful thing, I'm totally in love. And then the beloved person will do something that is really annoying to you. <laughs> this is an inevitable part of any relationship. In good relationships, people, the people focus on what they love about the partner and minimize or trivialize the things they don't like so much. Yeah, he forgot my birthday, but boy, isn't he just way so thoughtful in a thousand different ways. In bad marriages, people do just the reverse. They see all the negative things. They emphasize the negative things. They take it as evidence of the partner's inherent failings and minimize any of the good or thoughtful things that the partner does. So by being aware of how we are thinking about the other person, whether we are backing ourselves into a corner of self-righteousness because we're just unwilling to see it in another way, uh, we, we, create our own, we create our own prisons, if you will, um, and we will keep ourselves either trapped maybe too long in a relationship that's bad, um, but the, the beneficial side is that we will stay longer in a good relationship because we're doing our best to make it a good one, if that makes any sense. It's how we are interpreting the behavior of our partner that is going to make a great deal of difference in how we get along. And once, just to rehash, just, yeah. too, uh, again, not talk everybody, but it's just so that we're, on, we're all on the same page. This is information that conflicts with what we see uh, as ourself, right? So that's this, all of this basis is individual. I think that's important um, to point out, right? Because it's about not the worldview, it's how we've decided to interpret all those things within ourselves. Yes, yes, exactly right. Uh, if you see yourself as a good, smart, kind, ethical person you're going to do what you can to maintain that view of yourself. And it, the, the more information you're given that, you, you know, maybe you were responsible in some way for that rift in your family, um, the harder it's going to be for you to accept this. I once had, Elliot and I got a wonderful letter from a man who told us the following story. He said, my family, my siblings and I have been at war with each other for seven years. It was one of those estate battles over money. So the big family rift 
you know, some siblings on one side and some on the other side. He said, when your book came out, I gave it to our mediator and I said, give this book to those people so they can see what they're doing wrong. <laughs> okay. He said, for some reason, this didn't work. He said, and then a few years later, I reread your book and a miracle happened. The words on the page changed. And I suddenly looked at it and I said, oh my God, I'm responsible for this rift also. So he said, I called up the mediator and I said, give them this message. Here is what I have been doing wrong. Here's what I am sorry about. Here's where I misunderstood you. Here is my responsibility for my part in maintaining this family rift. And, and did things said, get better? or Within a week, it was resolved. Within a week, he said, because it just removed the thorn in their paw. It allowed them to say, well, thank you for acknowledging your part in this. Here's what our part in it was. Now, is this going to happen magically in every family rift? Of course not. But what this man was able to see is, and this is, you know, in, it's a, a microcosm of any rift or conflict or quarrel that we have with anyone that we love or care about. It's rare that it's only the other person's problem. But it's hard for us, really hard for us to see that something in our own behavior might be responsible also for this quarrel or this ongoing dilemma that we can't seem to solve. So would it be oversimplification to simply say that if we remove the, the for this for this gentleman, right, who gave the book to them, to his family members, he removed the information that was conflicting with them. Is that right? So he held, you know, this this uh, judgment against them and they he removed that. So once he removed that, then they could see themselves, um, there was not a conflict with themselves, so then they could also maybe open up to his side. Is that, is that, am I kind of understanding it? What he, what he was able to say was, instead of self-justifying, instead of denying his responsibility or his contribution to the rift, he said, look, I am partly to blame here, too. Here's, I can't do anything about you. I can only do something about me. Here's what I've been doing that was wrong. Here's what I've been doing that was wrong. I was insulting you. I was calling you names. I was not listening to your point of view. I was not understanding what I had done to add fuel to the flames here. And when he did that, he made it possible for them to say the same thing. That is to give up their own self-justifications for their part in the rift. So Any people, rift is a dance. You know, two people are waltzing. If one of them stops waltzing, you got to change the tune. So at this time, I'm sure listeners are saying, okay, look, I've got this in my family or with, with this person at work. I'm sure there's a lot of conflicts. What? How can we stop right here listening to you and, and, and make that change? How could we, you know, adjust our perspective so we understand that maybe the solution is what we want versus being right? Ah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, if we're talking about conflict resolution, the goal for any two people who are in a conflict is to say, all right, instead of backing each of us into a corner and determining that we're absolutely right and there's no compromise here possible, let's, let's rephrase this entire issue. What is the problem that we want to solve and how best can we solve it? So 
uh, you know, on a small level, when a you know a husband and wife are fighting about something like um, you know getting somewhere on time, that's a common one in in couples. Uh, it's not that one is right and one is wrong, and it's it's a kind of quarrel that people could be having over and over and over again with not ever resolving it. But if instead you say what can we do so that we are not always arguing about this same thing? We make it an issue, a problem to be solved, rather than who's right or who's wrong. Then you are reframing what, what the issue is and how best to talk about it. As soon as you're framing it in, I'm right and you're wrong, and my way of doing things is the only way and the better way, and yours isn't, you are putting the other person in a state of dissonance. You're saying you don't respect their intelligence or their judgment uh, or their experience and they're not going to say thank you so much for making me feel that way they're just not <laughs> so you're never you're so, never going to win unless you you stop this this back and forth of dis- dissonance right exactly what it means is that when we argue with another person if we want them to change their mind or give up a belief or understand something that they're doing that's wrong we aren't going to do it by making them feel stupid. So the, the usual thing of, what were you thinking when you did that? You, you know, the rest of the sentence is implied <laughs> is, you idiot, right? So if you, if anything with that tone, what were you thinking? The person will reply, what I was thinking is that it was a really smart thing to do. That's what I was thinking. So don't, you, if, as soon as you make the other person, as soon as you put the other person in a state of dissonance where they have to choose between feeling that they were stupid to do what they did or smart to do what they did, guess which one they'll choose. Makes a lot of sense. You see. This is why I said, you know, for me, I'll tell you, working with Elliot has taught me so much about this, and it really has made me so aware of, I mean, I still make plenty of mistakes, several of them before breakfast, you know, <laughs> but, but I'm... I understand what the power is of, in an argument or just in trying to persuade somebody, of seeing it from their point of view. The more committed that we are or the other person is to a course of action, because we've spent a lot of time or money or effort or something in it, um, the less likely the person is going to be to be able to say, boy, you were right and I really should change my mind here. Now, I'm wondering how often that happens. I, in my family, there was a few that went way back to were Northern European and um, on my mom's side. And it went way back over some kind of fish, fishing rights. And uh-huh. it's still alive today uh, with some parts of the family, you know, uh, even though they weren't even alive when the original, you know, problem occurred. What is it about people I'm, that have almost burned bridges and ruined families? Is there a way back? Is there anything we can do later, years later? Oh, I think so. But, you know, it's very hard because when I just said the more time, money, and effort you put in something, the harder it is to change. Just imagine this over generations. So let me give you a story from uh, my uh, my beloved Irish husband who died last year. But he was he was quite a remarkable guy. He had an older brother. The Irish are tough. The Irish are tough and unforgiving. And if there's a rift in the family, it can go on for years and years and years and years. And um, we went to visit his older brother. This was my first meeting with the older brother. Um, And uh, they were, you know, the older brother was doing his usual insulting, denigrating kind of thing. And uh, my husband, Ronan, said to him, "Um, 
uh, I'm sorry, the the brother said to my husband, what's the matter with you, Ronan? You're supposed to, don't you know the rules of the game? I insult you and you insult me. That's what we'll do. And Ronan said to him, I'll tell you what, let's play a new game. I'll say something nice to you and you say something nice to me. It just completely undercut. The brother was joking about let's be insulting and mean. Ronan wouldn't play the game. Let's be nice to each other. And you know, the brother absolutely heard him and changed. It's not that this is easy, but what it takes is an awareness of the pattern of the dance that we're in. If you and the other person have been doing a tango for 27 years and you stop doing the tango, the the other person is going to try to get you to do the same dance again, but eventually... The the music's going to change and the steps are going to change as well. We can't change the other person, but we can change ourselves. We can change our willingness to play the same old game. Dr. Carol Tavris, you've been listening to her talk about um, self-justification and cognitive dissonance. And I'd like to thank you because I think a lot of us listening here are, are getting it. We're seeing that there's an awareness to how we act, how we react, and how we make these decisions. Um, her, your book, your most recent book, is Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, co-authored by Elliot Aronson. Is there a website we could visit? Uh, nope. But you can find all about the book on Amazon, big um, author's page there for both of us. Lots of reader reviews and uh, lots of information about the book there. And again, Carol, Dr. Carol Tavris is an American social psychologist and author. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Matt Townsend So Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, too. You're a terrific interviewer. I've enjoyed it. All Bye-bye. Right. Thank you for listening, and we'll be right back with more after this. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm filling in for Matt today, Kim Powers-Stilson, and we have just been talking about self-justification and cognitive dissonance. We've had Dr. Carol Tavers on, and uh, she helped us walk through, you know, what it is about conflict and um, this dissonance that uh, allows this conflict with self to have us react in different ways. And I loved her, her uh, part about humility control thought that was really helpful. Are we just reacting um, based on how we feel about ourselves? Or is it the truth? Could we change our minds a little? Maybe, uh, you know, mend some rifts we have in our family. All right, we've been talking about this. And now we're going to talk a little bit about um, being grounded. And, you know, maybe a good way to prevent ourselves from justifying our actions is by grounding ourselves, reminding ourselves to keep both feet on the ground. Um, to help us, we've asked our producer, Madison Allred, to evaluate a list of seven steps that are meant to be simple and easy, something you could apply into your life that um, may help us when things have not turned out the way we'd like them to or thought they would. And uh, why don't you listen in? Well, I was asked to review a list on how to stay grounded and to, you know, apply it to my own life. This list is by lifehack.org and was, well, the first one that popped up on Google. Number one, make your bed every day. I mean, I could, but I normally wake up late anyways, so taking the time to do that would mean being later to my first class than I normally am. Not worth it. Also, when I get home, it's kind of welcoming that I can literally just fall right into bed and everything stressful from the day will be worth it since, you know, now I'm sleeping. That is, after I get my five hours of homework done. Number two, clean up your kitchen every day. 
Eh, not really feeling this one. I mean, I'd rather just let them all pile up and do them all at once, because it feels like it's less work, even though it might be more. Number three, have morning and evening routines that are made up of activities of self-care, exercising, and straightening up. Well, in the morning, I'm just going to, you know, put it right out there. I'm going to be late no matter what I do, but normally I try to keep some sort of courtesy for the professors. But then again, I'm the one paying tuition, hello, and paying their paychecks, so they should just be glad that I'm even coming to class and just ignore the fact that I'm always late. But anyways, I digress. Now, on to evening routines. Meh, no, most of the time I just finish homework or <laughs> out with friends, so I'm way too tired to do anything elaborate. I just don't need a nice, calming routine. I feel like my rush is my routine. Look at me right there, being deep. Number four, sort your mail daily. Well, that'd be helpful if I actually received mail. I receive like one letter every two weeks. Not much to sort. But, you know, if I could apply that to email, I might actually be able to do that. But it would just be more like spam, 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 spam. Oh, look, picture of a puppy that my friend sent me. Spam, spam, useless university information, spam, spam. And me just thinking the whole time, why do I even have an email account? Five, keep paper in no more than two locations. Paper? Paper. Like, printer paper. Oh, well, that's easy. I already do that. You know, I just keep it in one place, you know, in the tray of my printer. Why else would you need any other paper? So I feel like I'm doing pretty good on that one. Six, maintain order by putting things away all the time. Yeah, I tried to do that once. Um, it didn't really work out. Pretty much within three days after doing laundry, my room looks like a war zone again. I like to say that it's my creative outlet, where the fact that nothing having a place is the way that everything has a place. Look at me being cryptic. Number seven, do at least one five-minute cleanup per day. I mean, I guess I could do that. Or could use those five minutes sleeping. I mean, what would you rather do? Wow, you know, after going through that list, I feel better. I mean, I just... Never quite realized how grounded I really was. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. And thanks so much to Madison Allred for giving that segment on being grounded. I think she was doing a little self-justification there. (laughs) Maybe just a little bit. She could learn some things from our show like we all have. Yeah, I loved, um, I have to say that, you know, Rob was talking about, um, you know, cleaning, cleaning up, right? Uh, And, and. Your justification well, led to the idea, this to, to help, And I think I'm justified in this. When What's the point in owning dishes when when you're in a bachelor environment? That just creates problems. So I, I throw everything away. I do paper plates, paper bowls, disposable utensils, paper cups, and that works very well. Pots and pans is where you start to get into some trouble. They don't make a paper pot that you can boil water in. Or soup or mix up a can of anything, right? You have to wash it afterwards. My goodness. And that starts to create some problems. <laughs> and, you know, that, that what about the green issue there, right? So if every bachelor felt like that, right, throwing away paper and, and bowls and then invented the pot, which would be a fabulous idea. Because you could eat straight issue. out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you wouldn't need those papers. So, in effect, you'd be saving paper plates and bowls because you just eat out of the pot now. That's true. So you would be helping the environment. I do that anyways now. I eat out of the pot. Oh, it, yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, like if I make mac and cheese, because I usually just eat the whole thing. I <laughs> straight just out of sit the down at the TV with yeah. this big handle. <laughs> and did you finish it? Did you eat the entire I thing? ate all of it and a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a cruel reality that any 
guy out there listening could be happily married for 30 years. And if his wife were to go out of town for more than about two days, those instincts would come back. Right. That's true. I, my husband, my, I left my husband and my son, my 12-year-old son, for a week, and I came back, and they'd, they'd just eaten TV dinners and ice cream the entire time, all out of the compartments. The trash was laden with contain, empty containers. It works great. No dishes in the sink, though. I was pretty impressed until I realized they hadn't used any at all. That's not very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So back to, I mean, a little more serious then about um, Madison. She came up with all these justifications. Do, do any of you guys, did you learn something today about justification? I do it all the time. and I still think I'm right. <laughs> no, but the, well, and one thing too is when you're in the moment where you're self-justifying is the time when you need to have the clearest picture of what's going on. But we usually have the most opaque picture of what's going on. Right. You're a little emotional probably then. Yeah. Um, Any challenges? Can we exert a challenge? Maybe this week stop if uh, maybe we could stop this, you know, slide down the pyramid of self-justification, stop ourselves, be more aware. Yeah. Well, well, I think, you know, kind of going off that and then what you you asked earlier, I was thinking about what she said, like, we can't change the other person. We can only change ourselves. And so I think like that's a challenge that everyone can take is if you are self-justifying yourself, you know, in whatever situation it is, the only person that you can really control and that you have change over in any situation is yourself. And so I think the best thing you can do is just learn to humble yourself and just be like, you know what, I'm wrong or I'm not right or I messed up. I, you know, this is my fault and take ownership of that and, and change yourself and not put the blame on others and not look for other places. And I, you know, that's a hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do, but I think that's the only true way to, to you know, fix that problem. I think that's a fabulous idea, Skylar. Um, it's she called it humility control. We could call it a humility meter, and we could just kind of meter our actions. Is this are we doing this for us, or whom? Right. So, okay, who's going to take that challenge, Skylar? I will. I will back? take the challenge. <laughs> okay, and Merritt, I'll take the challenge. It's something I need to work on. Rob. Rob's guy. No, because I like to drive fast, so <laughs> I'm, not, no. I'm not quite ready. <laughs> All right, so no humility meter for Rob, but the rest of us are going to try to stop the, the spiral of cognitive dissonance and uh, maybe make the world a little, be- a little better place. And meanwhile, Rob's going to be making uh, up a contract for uh, paper pots. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> All right, you've been listening to the Matt Townsend Show. I enjoyed this great team here. Matt, you can stay in Hawaii as long as you want. Um, but aloha, I'm sure everybody misses him, and he'll be back soon. Thanks for listening on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. <laughs>